Welcome to episode 145 of This Week in Linux, your weekly source for Linux GNUs. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. Coming up on this week's episode, it's just jam-packed with stuff. Cloud Linux has released the stable version of their CentOS alternative Alma Linux OS. We've got some exciting media streaming news for the Raspberry Pi. OBS Studio announced the our release candidate for the 27.0 release, as well as potential support for Wayland. NVIDIA support for Wayland also may be coming, and NVIDIA announced support for GPU pass-through. In other hardware news, ARM has announced the ARM V9 architecture, and then in, we're going to be jumping into distro news, which we got news from Ubuntu 2104 beta, as well as the Ubuntu testing week, and so much more, including Arch Linux, Nitrix Linux, Parrot Security, and even some mobile distro news with the Lineage OS announcement for their latest release of 18.1. That's not all. Back by popular demand, we're going to be jumping into everyone's favorite legal news with the SEC versus library and how it affects crypto. All that and so much more coming up on this week's episode of Twill, your weekly source for Linux GNUs. First in the show this week, we're going to talk about Alma Linux, which is a CentOS alternative from the cloud Linux company. Alma Linux OS has released the first stable version of the distribution. Now, this is very important because it relates to uh, CentOS Linux and what happened with them. So if you're not aware, CentOS Linux is the distribution that was the rebuild of Rail that Red Hat, Red Hat was making and are no longer being developing that because they have switched the development structure of Rail and CentOS be using for like development, development strategies. And they've also made some changes for the offerings of Rail itself so that CentOS is now related to CentOS streams in more of a development situation versus the CentOS Linux term. You know, having two things called CentOS makes it a little bit confusing, but hopefully that explains it a little bit more. Uh, they've created a bit of an uproar by doing this from the community for a variety of reasons, but mostly because of the poor timing and the confusing lackluster communication coming from Red Hat. In my opinion, on this particular topic, is a bit controversial in that I think that it's pretty much a win-win for everyone involved in the situation, even in the long run anyway. And I know that doesn't really, really make that much sense, uh, but I'm currently working on a video to give more in-depth information regarding this perspective. So be sure to subscribe. Uh, but for now, let's talk about Alma Linux because part of the reason for that perspective is Alma Linux. So let's talk about that. So Alma Linux, in less than four months' time since the announcement of the changing to CentOS streams, Cloud Linux has released a stable version of Alma Linux as a free community-supported Rail rebuild. Now, that may seem like a contradiction to say a community-supported Rail rebuild when it was made by a for-profit company called Cloud Linux. Well, that's just it. Cloud Linux has formed a nonprofit organization that will take over responsibility for managing the Alma Linux OS project going forward. So in addition to the announcement that the Alma Linux OS stable release is out, they've also made a nonprofit organization to work on the Alma Linux project. So Alma Linux is a one-to-one -one binary compatible drop-in replacement for CentOS Linux. Again, CentOS Linux, CentOS Streams, different things. Uh, so they say that you can use it for any general purpose computing need for bare metal installations, virtual machines, containers, 
uh, cloud providers, that sort of stuff. And they also said that they've provided official images for all of those cases and that they're working on ARM support in a future release. So there is another alternative being developed, uh, Rocky Linux, which is certainly interesting to see what happens there. But I got to say that Cloud Linux getting a stable release of Alma Linux available and out less than four months from the announcement is quite impressive. And if you'd like to learn more about Alma Linux, I'll have links in a, for the latest the announcement for the stable release as well as links to their downloads page if you want to check it out uh, in the show notes below. Up next in the show, let's talk about Ubuntu 21.04 beta has been released, as well as the Ubuntu testing week. So the beta has been released along with the Ubuntu testing week. And for, for those who are not familiar, the Ubuntu testing week is a community effort to help test Ubuntu and the flavors prior to release of the distro. All of the flavors are involved in this testing week. Even the remixes are involved if you want to help test those. Yusuf Phillips of Zubuntu joined us on Destination Linux this past episode, or episode 219, to discuss the Ubuntu testing week. So if you'd like to learn more about this effort, I'll have a link to that episode in the show notes below. So let's talk about Ubuntu proper first, and then we'll talk about some, uh, some of the flavors. Now, that's not to say that the flavors are improper. I just mean that proper as in the official upstream edition you get it. Uh, Ubuntu 2104 is powered by the Linux 5.11 kernel, Mesa 21.0 graphics drivers, GCC 10, and also they have made some some significant changes. Although the the GNOME shell is not is not one of those. We'll get to that in a second. But first of all, LTO is being enabled by default. So link time op optimizations is what LTO stands for. It essentially yields greater performance by allowing additional compiler optimizations at link time on the entire binary. If you want to find out more about what this means exactly, I'll have links in the show notes for clarification. Uh, also, uh, standalone XWayland, it will be available in this release. We talked about the uh, announcement for the removing x into a standalone release uh, in episode 143 of Twill. So you want to learn more about that. I'll have that linked in the show notes as well. And oh, there's also going to be better Wayland support to the point that Wayland is now going to be enabled by default in Ubuntu 21.04. Now they did this back in the day at 17.10, but they did not keep that in the future releases after that because it didn't work as good as they wanted it to at the time. And at this point, there is you're going to depending on your situation depending on your needs it may or may not work good for you to be uh, default for Wayland but you know we'll see what happens so some people will have plenty of uh you know value in using the Wayland version depending on what you need for applications and what you do on your computer you may or may not uh need to use X at some point uh, but anyway also, like I said with GNOME, they're not going to be going to GNOME 40. They're going to be sticking with the 3.38 desktop as the default environment. Uh, but it is something that's interesting about that is that they are going to be doing a dark theme by default for the GNOME shell. Now, that's interesting because one, uh, dark themes are a really nice approach when it comes to the shell or the desktop environment itself. Uh, but they're not going to be applying that to the application. So it's going to be a hybrid approach design which I am a big fan of, as I've talked about pre like previously on other episodes where we talked about uh, Kubuntu adding a hybrid, uh, KDE Plasma adding a hybrid, uh, Fedora 34 is adding the hybrid. So all that sort of stuff. I uh, Hybrid design is a very nice design. Anyway, there's this going to be including the top bar menus, uh, the dock quick list, notifications, the notification tray, calendar tray, uh, the like pop-up shell dialogues, that sort of stuff will be having a dark theme. 
So that's the the gist of Ubuntu 21.04. We'll go into more depth in the future when we actually get to the release day, but let's move on to the flavors. So Kubuntu 21.04 will be coming with the latest KDE desktop environment, Plasma 5.21. Uh, Zubuntu 21.04 will have the latest XFCE, which is 4.16 for that desktop environment. Uh, Ubuntu Budgie 21.04 will get the Budgie desktop 10.5.2. And for those interested, they said that they have uh, initial support for Raspberry Pi devices in using Ubuntu Budgie 21.04. Also, we've got some uh, interesting things for Ubuntu Chillin, Kylin, something. 21.04 will have the brand new UK UI 3.0 desktop, which is a very nice, uh, slick uh, combination of different things. It, it Based on my research of this DE, it has um, KDE stuff involved, Mate stuff involved, and it's a it's a very interesting DE. So you may or may not uh, want to check it out, depending on your preference of GTK versus Qt, or maybe you like both. Then at that point, sure, why not? Also, Ubuntu Mate twenty one hundred four, Lubuntu, Ubuntu Studio, and as well as the some unofficial derivatives, aka remixes, such as the Ubuntu Unity remix and Ubuntu Cinnamon Remix have also released 21.04 beta versions for this Ubuntu testing week, so you can check that out if you like. And uh, we'll go into much more depth for the flavors as well during the official release of the 21.04 series. But for now, links in the show notes. And also, uh, if you do want to help out the the distribution testing, uh, be sure to check the links in the show notes for the Ubuntu testing week because that is going on right now. It started on April 1st and will be going to April 7th. So if you want to help participate in making the Ubuntu series for 2104 better, links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we're going to jump into some hardware news. And first up, we're going to talk about NVIDIA. There's a couple things to talk about there. NVIDIA is now supporting GeForce GPU pass-through for Windows Verge machines running from a Linux host. This is a big win for those wanting to run Windows games from within a virtual machine while maintaining your Linux host desktop and are using GeForce graphics cards. Because because with with NVIDIA 465 series and beyond, you'll be able to do it with de- uh, laptops and desktops. So the GeForce GTX 900 series or later for notebooks and for desktops, the G- GeForce GTX 1000 series uh, and, or later can do it. So this is also related to just supporting uh, guest operating systems for Windows 10 only through this virtualization, which makes sense. So if you wanted to run Windows games inside of your uh, virtual machines and be able to pass your GPU to that virtual machine, uh, you can now do so with official support uh, with NVIDIA. So it was kind of wonky and you you could be able to do it before, but now they're actually building it themselves, which is great to hear. In addition to that, they're also doing some work for Wayland, which is kind of shocking. So NVIDIA has proposed a merge request to Mesa that would lay the infrastructure for allowing alternative GBM or generic buffer manager backends to be loaded, such as the NVIDIA's proprietary driver, should it uh, you know, be implemented in GBM in the future, which is likely that it will be. Because it looks like NVIDIA is finally taking the GBM route for supporting Wayland compositors with their proprietary drivers because instead of the old style of doing the EGL streams, because for years, NVIDIA was against using GBM. They even did presentations against GBM and instead proposed the using the EGL streams. And some compositors like uh, Gnome's Mutter implemented support for EGL streams. 
But many Wayland Compositor developers did not like that rather uh, NVIDIA-specific uh, solution, considering the open-source GPU drivers all supported a GBM at the time, and still do. Uh, so this, this is good news because this would add the ability to Mesa's GBM infrastructure for handling other backend besides the built-in DRI backend, which means that NVIDIA implementing GBM support within their proprietary driver would in turn allow Wayland compositors to more easily work with their driver stack. So a little bit, a little bit uh, technical aspects in that, that topic, but what's just to break it down is that because NVIDIA is doing and did this merge request, it shows that they are uh, interested in making GBM support for their driver stack, which therefore makes it easier for Wayland support on their hardware, which most of the time people's uh, complaints with switching to Wayland is that if they have NVIDIA hardware, it would not work at all or very well. And the, the case for that is because of the EGL streams versus GBM. And now that they're going towards presumably to GBM, that should in the future not be an issue. So that is fantastic news. If I learn more about these two things uh, related to NVIDIA, I'll have links in the show notes. In the next bit of hardware news, we're going to talk about ARM because they have announced the ARM V9 architecture. And they say it comes with a focus on performance, machine learning, digital signal processing, and security. So ARM V9 is introducing the ARM Confidential Compute Architecture, or CCA, for confidential computing with dynamically created realms, as they're calling it. They've also improved the machine learning performance via Scalable Vector Extensions 2, or SVE2, and also they have improved the uh, capabilities for digital signal processing, as well as other improvements over ARM V8. It's been almost about 10 years since ARM V8 was announced, which was October 2011. So there's, a, there's uh, people are curious about what the difference between the two architectures are, the V8 and the V9. And while it's not as significant as it was from 7 to 8, because the execution code was completely rewritten from 78 to 8, it's not that huge of a difference, but they are doing some significant changes. They even say that they are expecting CPU performance increases of more than 30% over the next two generations of mobile and infrastructure CPUs. And ARM themselves say that the highlights of this new architecture are the new ARM V9 architecture will form the leading edge of the next 300 billion ARM-based chips, advances specialized process uh, processing built on the economics design freedom, and accessibility advantages of general-purpose computing, uh, delivers greater performance, enhanced security, and digital signal processing, or DSP, and machine learning M or ML capabilities for this new architecture. So this is a lot to talk about. If you want to learn more about it, there is plenty to learn in their uh, blog post as well as the press release for the new architecture. I have links to both of those in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean and their app platform. DigitalOcean's app platform service is a solution to build modern cloud-native apps. It uses a simple and intuitive and visually rich experience to rapidly build, deploy, manage, and scale apps. It supports multiple programming languages like Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, and Ruby. It also has support for static sites, Docker, and container images. And with the app platform, you get high scalability with zero infrastructure management. 
What does that mean? Well, you simply point your GitHub or GitLab repository to the app platform and let it do all the heavy lifting for you, like handling your app runtimes and your dependencies, so you can push code to production in just a few clicks. It also helps automatically secure apps by creating, managing, and renewing your SSL certificates and also protecting your apps from DDoS attacks. Uh, run code with little to no customization because the app platform uses open cloud-native standards and automatically analyzes your code, creates containers, and runs them on Kubernetes clusters. As a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started on DigitalOcean's app platform for free. Actually, better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you go to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's app platform. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we're going to jump into some mobile news, and that is Lineage OS 18.1 has been released. And don't let that point one mislead you. This is not a mere point release. So Lineage changed the way they structure the versioning scheme, so there wasn't really a 18.0, making this big update the version of 18.1. Is that still confusing? Yeah, me too. Anyway... Uh, from the announcement for the press release for this latest uh, this latest release of 18.1, they say that we have been working extremely hard since Android 11's release last August to port our features to this new version of Android. Thanks to our hard work adapting Google's fairly large changes in Android 10, we are we were able to rebase our changes onto Android 11 much more efficiently. This led to a lot of time to spend on cool new features. So let's talk about those features. Uh, first of all, they have improved the voice recorder app. This the user has a new user interface that has been completely revamped, and there's also a now a UI for easily viewing, managing, and sharing your voice notes. You can choose the quality of your audio recordings to save space, as well as pause and resume the recordings if you'd like to do that. They've also added a new calendar based on the open source ETAR calendar, and they've also improved um, the music player and they've uh, improved the uh, apps lay UI layout, depending on if you know where you get the apps. If so, all the official Lineage OS apps now support dark mode. Yes, job there. Always love hearing that. And also, they have introduced a built-in backup mechanism for Lineage OS 18.1, which is fantastic. Uh, I'm always happy to see uh, you know backup mechanisms built into any kind of OS or any kind of project period because you can never have too many backups that is a fact i don't have anything based on that but i feel very comfortable saying that so fact anyway they've also uh, announced that they have a uh, a lot of devices on their build roster so this press release gives you information about the 17.1 support and also the 18.1 support for devices. And they actually have 70 different devices for both 18.1 and 17.1. So depending on which device you have, you have a very good likelihood that you will be able to use LineageOS on that device because there's 140 devices that will support LineageOS in some way, though 70 for the 18.1 release. If you'd like to learn more about Lineage OS or just want to check it out and see what it is, if you're not familiar, it is an uh, alternative to Android that is based on Android, or more specifically based on the open source version of Android, the AOSP. And uh, it's basically taking out the Google part of it and making an Android that isn't Google-y, Google-ified. Although you could still add the Google apps in the Play Store if you want to. It's just you don't have to with Lineage, 
Yeah. There you go. If you'd like to learn more about this uh, particular uh, mobile operating system, I'll have a link in the show notes below for the latest release of 18.1. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about a application that I use every single time I make this show, and actually every time I kind of do anything on uh, making content on Linux, and that is OBS Studio. So OBS Studio 27.0 RC1 has been released. Now this is a release candidate, so it's not actually released yet, but I wanted to talk about it because one, uh, it's cool, and also because there's some really interesting information related to it for Wayland support. So we'll get that in a second, but first of all, let's talk about some uh, some new features that they have, like they've added a missing files warning when loading scene collections that have files missing, which is really nice. Uh, they've also added a service integration and browser doc support for Linux, which is awesome because if you're not familiar, it basically allows you to have uh, Streamlabs docs and other stuff uh, integrated into the interface directly, which is just very, very cool. They've also added source transitions, which means it allows you to set a transition for a source when showing or hiding it. Rather than being specifically for transitions on scenes, you can now do it directly on sources inside of scenes, which is very, very cool. They've also added track mat mode to stinger transitions, which supports a scene mask to display parts of the previous scene and the current scene at the same time, which is very, very cool. And in addition to that, something that is not that big of a deal in terms of, you know, it's you can kind of say this has been added, uh, but it's a huge deal for me. And just I think anybody who builds very complex OBS uh, structures and scene collections because they've added undo and redo. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, because I have on a couple of occasions done something and go, oh, I didn't want to. Well, duck here, because that's how it was. If you made a mistake in some kind of modification, it would be stuck. Now they have undo and redo. That is awesome. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so also, let's talk about the support for Wayland on Linux. Uh, this includes, uh, in addition to support for Wayland, it's also including new Pipewire capture sources when using Wayland. So GNOME developer George uh, Stavrakis I probably said that wrong, sorry if I did, uh, has been working to make OBS Studio work under Wayland, and that is coming to fruition with the release of OBS 27. So this will have native Wayland support and the ability to capture monitors and windows on Wayland compositors. So this required a lot of work, including creating textures for the DMA uh, BUF for more efficient screen capturing. Essentially, the TLDR of that is that implementing a monitor or window capture using the DMA BUFs uh, means uh, you can avoid copying buffers from GPU memory to RAM, which is usually a big bottleneck for capturing stuff inside of, well, anything. Uh, and also Wayland compatible capturing, making use of Flatpak portals and Pipewire. So I want to talk about that real quick because this is like an, yet another example of why open source community is so awesome. Because George said that thanks to the work that has, was done before him, he didn't have to start from scratch for making the Wayland support for OBS because others had attempted it before. In addition to the previous attempts, this is possible thanks to the infrastructure from other projects that were already working on things for Wayland, such as this so Wayland support for OBS is thanks to work on Pipewire and uh, Flatpak portals. Uh, though 
uh, portals are a dbus interface that provides various functionalities at runtime so you can use these portals that connect to different pieces that will allow you to have access for uh, your file system inside of a flatpak app and etc and a bunch of stuff like that but portals were created as a part of the flatpaks project but it's not exclusive to flatpaks so that's very very cool because it makes it possible to use part portals outside of the flatback sandbox which means that it can run in even inside of snaps or app images or in this case or a completely different thing which is awesome and also including the uh, pipewire support uh, the pipewire project is the essentially the future of audio on linux well, actually, even video because it was originally called Pulse Video before it was turned into Pipewire because they started doing more than just the video element. Uh, but Pipewire makes it possible for this to happen as well. So very, very cool to see all of this stuff come together to make something as important as... Uh, I know a lot of people wouldn't say that OBS is not that important, but for me, it's a massive deal because I can't use Waylon until OBS is supported on Waylon, which means that I will be able to Try Wayland more thanks to this. So thank you very much, George, and everybody else working on the other things that make this all possible. Oh, of course, also the people who work on OBS because, you know, what's really great about OBS is that a lot of the features we talked about in this topic are made by community members, uh, you know, who sometimes do plugins like Exceldro, who did the source transition stuff and a bunch of other things. So anyway, OBS is another example of why open source is awesome. And if you want to help test that or help work on this stuff, there are uh, many things to do. So there's they, uh, George says that all this Wayland uh, Pipewire and Portals code are only the first steps to make screencasting on Wayland better than X11. So there's still a lot to do and fix, and contributions are more than welcomed. So if you would like to contribute or find out more about what's happening in the next version of OBS or all the work that was done for OBS Studio on Wayland, I have links in the show notes. Next in the show is some great news for some Raspberry Pi people because if you have wanted to watch Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, etc. on your Raspberry Pi, you can now do so thanks to a new official Widevine package that is available for the Raspberry Pi 4 and 400. So Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, those sorts of stuff use the Widevine DRM to deliver protected streaming media. And that's what the that's what creates the issue of being able to watch stuff through it. Uh, but a well-known developer in the community uh, for the creation of Chromium Media Edition, uh, Vince, uh, Vince essentially created the same like an executable for Chrome that makes it possible to use a custom launcher and user agent that essentially tricked sites into working with the Raspberry Pi. But from this, we now actually have a new single library created by Vins that is the lib widevine CDM zero package, which is essentially a single library that you can install and get support for these kinds of services. And because it's a single package, it's just three lines of code. You just update, upgrade, and install this new package, which is fantastic. So if you want to watch uh, Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, Disney Plus, stuff like that that uses Widevine DRM in order to deliver the streaming media through a protected stream, you can now do so on a Raspberry Pi thanks to this. And potentially this would make it possible for improvements for other interfaces that use the Raspberry Pi to implement this sort of stuff, which is fantastic. So there you go. If you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have links in the show notes. 
Up next in the show, let's talk about some Linux Mint stuff. So there's been a little bit of drama around Linux Mint in regards to users installing or not installing updates on their system. On episode 139 of Twill, we discussed the findings that the Linux Mint team found that show a significant percentage of users on Mint were not installing updates. I received some interesting feedback classifying my coverage as Mint hate because I pointed out that Linux Mint used to discourage users from installing updates on certain types of updates, such as security and kernel updates. Now, I said this because Mint themselves expressed that users were still using Linux Mint 17, and that particular version had an update manager that had an infrastructure that discouraged updates for those users, because that 1 to 5 system, the 4 and 5 was basically making them scared that if they installed them, they would break their system and therefore discourage them to do so. Now, that's not hate against men. That's just saying that that's what happened. So people in a lot of the space are ta- made, made articles blaming users for this issue, and it's kind of a shared problem. Uh, but anyway, then on Twill 141, we discussed the news that Linux Mint might insist on updates for users because their newsletter described some the way they described it was kind of interesting and they used the word insist which kind of made people think that it was going to be forcing updates and that sort of stuff but we now have received a lot more information on this topic thanks to the latest monthly newsletter by Linux Mint and I'm happy to say that it is quite a bit good news in regards to Linux Mint updates so Linux Mint is implementing a new notification system for updates this new system features a pop-up window that shows the same information as the system tray icon, but due to being a pop-up, it is more noticeable and creates situations where users will need to interact with the notifications rather than ignoring the shield in the system tray like some people tend to do. Uh, and they say that the new updates notification system will act as a gentle and welcome reminder that you have system updates that need to be applied. And if the user dismisses it, the notification will be snoozed for two days, and then two days later, it will remind them that they have updates to install. Uh, in addition to this, there's also user configuration. So the new notification system for uh, updates has uh, configurable as- aspects. So you'll be able to set the when the notification dialog will be displayed or to be displayed only for security and kernel updates and that sort of stuff. Uh, Clem from Linux Mint says that we hope the default settings will work well for most people and these notifications will be a useful positive experience and the configuration made available is very flexible and should be able to please everybody. Now that is a strong statement. Uh, hopefully it does, but let's talk about like what they mean regarding the configuration's defaults. So by default, the update manager shows a notification if a particular update has been available for more than seven logged in days or if it's older than 15 calendar days. These values can be configured all the way down to two days for people who want more notifications, or all the way up to 90 days for people who want less notifications. Um, By default, the update manager also only counts security and kernel updates as being relevant for the notifications, but you can change that if you would like to have more uh, notifications regarding to uh, just general updates as well. So if the user absolutely hates getting improvements to their system through updates for some reason or another, then they can simply disable the automatic checks or even disable the update manager itself if they want to. I don't know why you'd want to do that, but if you're going to go to the 90 days thing anyway, I don't see why you would. By default, it has a thing about 30 days, so you can you know, have like a month between the periods depending on what kind of update it is. But overall, I think that 
depending on the type of update, really for me, I mean, it depends on the distribution, how they do updates and that sort of stuff. But for me, anytime I see an update, I am more than happy to install them because I want the system to be improved. And that's typically what comes with updates. Uh, not always, fair enough, but most of the time. Uh, anyway, I'm happy to see this effort from the Linux Mint team to encourage users to install updates because I want all users interested in Linux to have a good experience when they switch to Linux. Uh, so as good as possible, even. Uh, so regardless of which distro they choose to use. Um, so this news like this is always welcomed, uh, you know, regardless of what distro it comes from, because anytime you're making it easier to use the system and easier to get updates is also one of those examples to make it easier to use the system. I am in favor of that. If you'd like to learn more about this new notification system, you can find a link to Mint's newsletter in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com DLN. A password manager is very important software because it gives you peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. So how does it do that exactly? Well, securing your online accounts is very important. You actually should have a different password for each account on every website that you sign up to. Now that sounds like a lot to do. So that is where Bitwarden comes in because Bitwarden is a password manager that solves this by providing tools to store your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords for you, and even automatically fill in those passwords on login forms so you don't have to do that yourself, which is fantastic. I have... Uh, I, I love not having to fill it in, especially when you have ridiculously long, complicated passwords like I do. It is a very nice feature. And you can also do this with many different types of devices, like your web browser on your desktop. You can also use a desktop application or mobile apps and even on the command line. And Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end -end encryption before it ever leaves your devices so you know you're the only person with access to your data. And Bitwarden is, a, is the password manager that I use and trust. In addition to all the great features it has, it's also because it's 100% open source software. That's right, 100% open source software. So the infrastructure and the code and the features can be vetted and improved by the community and so much more. You can go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And did I mention you can get started for free? Well, you can do that, but I think you want to check out their premium account because they have so many cool features and it starts at less than a dollar per month. That's right. For just $10 per year, per year, you can get one gigabyte encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, priority customer service, and so much more. So make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN. This lets you get peace of mind knowing that your passwords and other sensitive data are safe while also supporting a company that truly gets open source. Sign up for their $10 per year premium account or their, their family account or their business account and get even more features to let them know that you appreciate them supporting open source and supporting the This Week in Linux podcast. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show is an interesting topic related to Arch Linux and their installer because, well, for a very long time, there's been a consensus in the Arch community that the Arch ISO should not include a guided installer. There's also been a lot of people outside of the Arch community who disagreed with that, and even people in the Arch community who also disagreed with that. So this was posted on April 1st of 2021, and I originally assumed this news was an April Fool's joke, because they released it on April 1st, and 
as a side note, if you are if you're releasing serious news, if you have serious news to share, wait a day or do it the day before because why create unnecessary confusion? Especially in like in this kind of case, it's because people did not expect this to happen and there's been known for a long time that it wouldn't happen so that it seems like it has and it made it confusing for really no reason. So, anyway, moving on. The installation medium now provides a guided installer using a Python tool called Arch Install. Very simply named, makes sense. Uh, this is a the Arch Install has been around for quite a while as a as a tool for for installing Arch in an easier guided way. So it's interesting to see that they have in, included it in this installer. And they also say that if you use this installer, that you need to remember to uh, mention the that you use the installer and also provide an Arch install log when you ask for support on the forum and etc. So once you have the Arch, inst Arch ISO running and you want to install using this, you just run Python, tack M, tack as in dash, but not exactly a dash. That's a long conversation tangent. We'll not go into that. Uh, tack M space Arch install space guided. And there you go. I'll have that linked in the show notes for more details. Uh, if you want to learn more, uh, you can also modify the gu guided.py or Python script to create a custom guided install. So that's pretty cool. Uh, but, you know, this is something that I never expected to see. So I think it's quite interesting and I will be giving it a shot to see just how guided the installer is and to see how and how it changes the experience of installing Arch because Arch is a, a notorious uh, installation experience for a while, and I'm very curious to see what happened here. And also another, again, side note, not on April 1st. Just, if you got something serious to share, you know, it's April 2nd, March 31st, March 30th. Those are good days. Just food for thought in the future. Links in the show notes. Up next in the show is some more distro news. We're going to talk about Nitrix Linux. So Nitrix Linux uh, has released 1.3.9. Now, Nitrix Linux is really interesting because this they, they've, they've made some big changes in this latest release, which you wouldn't kind of assume that based on the numbering scheme because it's 1.3.9, and we talked about 1.3.2 in episode 116 of Twill. So uh, there, that's when 1.3.2 was when they decided to switch from systemd to openrc, and it seemed a bit odd at the time because switching the base... Uh, to using systemd with a combination of dev1 and ubuntu uh, seemed a little bit odd however this 1.3.9 change has made the base of nitrix based on debian so switching the base to debian's does seem a lot more practical the decision to do to wanting to use openrc instead of systemd and debian does make it easier to do that uh, because it's not intertwined as much as the way that Ubuntu was with systemd or is with systemd. Uh, so this change will create some issues regarding existing installs. So they recommend that users perform a clean installation, but they also say that their installer, if you select a if, to replace the partition in the Calamari's installer, you can uh, erase only the root rather than, uh, you know, you'd be able to keep your user directory and that sort of stuff. So the way that they have the, the default setup for Nitrix says that they can make that possible. So that's interesting. 
And they also want to em emphasize that they that the preferred method of installing new software on Nitrix is to use app images. So that might be less of an issue in that situation. However, you know they know that some people are going to be using the main repositories just by default. So that's why they're talking about clean installs. Because when you go from an Ubuntu base, then change it to an Ubuntu slash dev1 hybrid thing, and then switch it again to Debian, it's going to be a significant change in the user experience. Uh, so that's why one of the reasons I wanted to talk about the uh, versioning scheme or the version number 1.3.9 does not convey much the difference in terms of like the 1.3.2 that we talked about previously. So, you know, anyway, so Nitrix Linux 1.3.9 releases with uh, KDE Plasma 5.21.2 desktop environment, which is notable because uh, it's ba being based on Debian, and having this implies that they're going to be maintaining Plasma separate from Debian, uh, not because Debian doesn't have uh, 5.21. It sort of does right now because uh, Debian Experimental has 5.21. However, uh, the that's not going to be coming in the next version, future releases of Debian for a while. So Debian SID, I'm pretty sure, has 5.20, uh, but Debian is known for taking a long time to update KDE Plasma, arguably sometimes years. So it is likely that Nitrix is going to be maintaining it separately. So that's interesting to see what happens there. And in the latest uh, release of 1.3.9, they also have updated to KDE Applications 20.12.3 and KDE Frameworks 5.79. They've also added a new default application style with a design, which looks quite nice, and have changed the window decorations to use the window buttons on the left, which is notable because about, I don't know, six, seven years ago, people lost their minds because Ubuntu had the audacity to do such a thing. And I, I just think that that's very silly. It's not a big deal. It's on the left versus the right. Why is that? You know, who cares? I just put it in there because people might say something about it. I don't know. I think it's okay. Buttons on the left or the right. Meh. Now, this latest release of uh, Nitrix Linux has Linux kernel 5.4.108 LTS for the default kernel, but you can switch the kernel for a couple of things. You can switch it to the 5.10.26 LTS or the 5.11.10 as an alternative kernel. And they also have support for uh, licorice kernels, the Linux Libre kernel, and some other stuff. So if you want to switch it out, you can do so. Where There's some commands on their latest release notes that you can check out, which I'll have linked in the show notes. Uh, but also, I wanted to talk about the fact that, um, if you're not familiar, Nitrix also makes the MAUI kit. So they make the applications that are using the MAUI kit thing for... Uh, they, they've updated the 1.2.1 of the suite for MAUI apps and created two new apps called Shelf and Clip. Now, Shelf is a convergent document viewer that supports PDF and EPUB files, and Clip is a convergent video player and media collection manager utilizing MPV as the backend. And I'm a fan of MPV. That's what I use for my media playing in general. So I am very curious to see how Clip works as a front end for MPV. So I'm looking forward to checking that out. And if you'd like to learn more about Nitrix or perhaps get a download to get to check it out, you can find links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about a security OS called Parrot, because they have released 4.11 of Parrot. If you're, for those who are unfamiliar, Parrot is a Linux distribution for pen testers from the company Parrot Security. And Parrot is the same classification 
or genre of distros that contains Kali Linux. And now there are a couple things I want to talk about. They have made some updates for pen testers and some developers and stuff like that. And also there's something really interesting about Parrot. We'll get to that in a second. But first of all, they're talking about uh, some potential changes to the structure of how Parrot is made based on Debian's uh, feature freeze state that is currently in because Debian puts a feature freeze on stuff for the next stable release of Debian, which is coming out fairly soon. Uh, and they say that, that as, as I, and I quote, we will catch the opportunity of a new Debian release to convert the current branch into an LTS or long-term support branch with fewer updates for a reliable, very reliable user experience. The long-term support conversion plan will also reintroduce ARM support and support for choice of init services or init tools like systemd or openrc, etc. So they also say that they are currently evaluating whether or not to provide a rolling release branch alongside the LTS one. So they're going to be converting their current, uh, basically rolling branch into an LTS branch. And they, have they haven't decided whether or not to, to go with just an LTS or also have a rolling release in addition to it. So that's pretty interesting to see what happens there. Uh, but for pen testers, they have made updates to the Metasploit framework. They have uh, updated uh, BetterCap. Uh, router exploit, and they've also added support for fish and ZSH as the shells uh, for those who want to use those particular ones. Uh, and I think Parrot, Parrot is an interesting distribution because, you know, there's a lot of distributions that are in this space. You know, there's Kali Linux, there's Black Arch, there's a bunch of other ones. Uh, but Parrot is interesting pen testing distro because of multiple factors. But the biggest one is that unlike the other pen testing distros, you can use Parrot as a daily driver. Well, I mean, not exactly, because there's a there's a Parrot security and a Parrot home. And the Parrot home you can use as the daily driver addition. So it's not exactly the same thing, but it's still cool and interesting that they have that separation between what they offer versus the other uh, pen testing distributions, because the other ones are typically saying don't use it as a daily driver unless you know what you're doing. And in those, even in those cases, maybe not. Just depends. So if you're a professional pen tester, then you can kind of do whatever you want. It's up to you. But in terms of the average user, you shouldn't even be using these distributions for the most part. Unless you're trying to learn pen testing, then that's fine. But it should absolutely not be a daily driver in that case. However, with Parrot Home, you could kind of do that anyway. So it's just really interesting that they have that as a piece overall. And they also have Parrot Home with multiple desktop environment options like Mate, XFCE, and KDE Plasma. So it's an interesting uh, dynamic in the way that they have this distribution structure for being pen testing and also a home edition if you want to use that. So that's pretty cool. If you'd like to learn more about Parrot security or Parrot distribution, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next to the show is everyone's favorite legal news. I know you've been waiting for this, so let's let's jump into that legal stuff everybody loves. And that is SEC versus library and how it affects crypto. So after a three-year investigation, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, is suing library over selling tokens as they've deemed them securities or investment contracts. If the lawsuit holds up, the decision will apply to most blockchain tokens, not just library, likely anyway, and would impact pretty much any U.S. resident selling these kinds of tokens. So the SEC announced a lawsuit against Library for selling unregistered securities. 
And this is their quotes, selling unregistered securities. SEC is classifying library's LBC token as a security, but by their definition, almost every crypto project would also be considered a security, which could be problematic to say the least. They say it's a security because it lacks sufficient utility. However, that's quite confusing considering you can't post videos on the library blockchain without using LBC, which arguably makes it a utility for that purpose. I mean, every time I post a video or an episode of this podcast, I use LBC because in addition to YouTube, this show is also available on the library network via the odyssey.com website, which means I have to use LBC as a utility to post this show there. So, hmm. They also say it's a security because the blockchain is being actively developed. Well, every tech platform that's like this would, you know, any sort of size, any large user base is going to be actively developed. So... What? Anyway, it seems that the SEC is ramping up their efforts in going after blockchain projects. Uh, and this is also uh, really interesting because they, uh, the library company asked how to uh, ask the SEC how to operate legally. They said that we repeatedly asked the SEC for guidance on how it would be possible to run the company legally. The SEC said that they could not tell us how to operate legally, but could only tell us that we were breaking the law. So that is an interesting thing to deal with. They're saying that you're breaking the law, but won't tell you how you're breaking it. Anyway, so Library Inc. has also said that they have spent a, a mil more than a million dollars on legal fees and several thousand hours of team member time on this particular case. And now this is this is very interesting because it's it's not just Library is a really cool platform. If you've never heard of it. It's a way to, uh, it's like an alternative to YouTube. So you go to odyssey.com, O-D-Y-S-E-E.com, uh, -E -E and that's there you can watch videos, and there's blog posts sometimes too. Uh, that's kind of like a more decentralized uh, structure of uh, media content. Now, it is somewhat centralized because of the blockchain structure, but, you know, it's, it's, it's different in that sense. Uh, but this is, this, if, the F if the SEC wins... The library network would continue to run, but Library Inc. would effectively cease to exist. And it gets worse. This would affect users too. So if LBC is declared a security, that means someone trading it would be required to have a license to do so. Because the term security in this case has really nothing to do with security as a concept, but it's just a term that they classify things like security versus commodity and etc. So the word trading here could be used loosely to describe not just someone who buys and sells LBC, but anyone who posts videos to library or tips someone on library might now be classified as trading securities without a license. This is a very complicated topic, and I'm not a crypto expert or a finances expert, so none of this is advice or whatever or any of that stuff. But I do think it's a very interesting topic, and I'm, I'm going to be looking into this much more to talk about in a future episode to see what happens with this particular case, because this is a very important thing and uh, has potential ramifications for a lot of different crypto projects. So uh, hopefully this doesn't turn badly or, you know, turn out badly. I guess it's already kind of badly, but hopefully it doesn't turn out bad. If you'd like to learn more about this, You'll find some links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about the latest release of GIMP, which is 2.10.24. 
Now, this is referring to a, uh, this is interesting because I want to talk about a couple of things they, wanted, they, they did in this particular release, but also uh, just to be clear about the fact that they've been working on GIMP 3.0 for quite a while. It's still under development, but it's great to see that they aren't waiting on uh, this giant release to introduce new improvements to the software because there have been some projects that would, you know, have uh, wait for years in order to make a new release because they wanted to uh, release the big changes all at once. And I think this approach is a better approach because you have uh, continuous improvements while also working on the bigger stuff, which is really cool. So 2.10.24 has support for being able to snap GIMPs, dif uh, different tools to guides, grids, and vectors outside of the canvas area. So this out of canvas snapping is very, very cool because it makes it easier to uh, control where you put elements without having to actually affect the canvas itself. So that is very nice. Uh, they've also expanded the metadata support, including the GeoTIFF metadata tag support, which is uh, geo-referencing information embedded with inside of a TIFF file used for map makers and that sort of stuff. They've also had many other improvements for metadata, such as uh, the metadata viewer and editor has been improved. They've also added a new feature uh, called negative darkroom for simulating enlargement prints from scans of photo negatives, which is pretty cool. And they've also done some improvements for uh, many file formats, such as the HEIF, PSP, TIFF, JPEG, PNG, PDF, DDS, BMP, PSD, etc., including raw image import now handles Darktable 3.6 and above, which is really interesting because Darktable 3.6 is not even out yet, and GIMP already has support for that upcoming version, which is a pretty cool thing to see inside of GIMP. Uh, if you'd like to check out more uh, and check out the links for the release notes for the 2.10.24, or just check out GIMP in general, I have links in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the channel or the show, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many others. You can go to tuxdigital.com slash contribute to learn more. And if you become a patron, you can join me during the live stream in the recording stadium. It's a stadium because reasons. And there we discuss uh, the topics in, in between the topics on the segments. We discuss everything uh, on the live stream as well as have a hangout every week after the show. You can do so by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. And you can also check out the DLN store by going to dlnstore.com. There you can find the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt or the shirt I'm currently wearing in the show, the This Week in Linux shirt, as well as many more, including a brand new one for hardware addicts. And a lot of stuff is coming this week. Uh, for example, we're going to be adding hats for the, the store, so check that out. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the Destination Linux Network. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1700 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week by going to dealinlive.com. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for your weekly source of Linux the news. <laughs>